0: Well, good morning. Again, you can turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians. We are starting a new book today. It's always exciting, at least to me, to start a new series, although I had a lot of fun. I hope you did too with Ruth. But this morning we turn really to a letter that we have not delved into yet since I've been here, which is the first letter written by Paul. Uh, The letter to Colossians was written by Paul, and yet we are reminded that it was divinely authored by God the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Trinity. As we work our way through the book of Colossians, and as you see other books of the Bible, it is true that we will hit parts of God's Word, and, and we will for sure hit them in Colossians, that challenge us and convict us to repent of some of our ways, to turn away from them and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ in all of our thoughts and our actions and our deeds. We can never fall for the lie that you hear put forward so often today that that is just Paul who wrote that, or that is just Moses who wrote that if you went back to the Pentateuch, or that is just Peter, or that is just any one of the other men that God used to convey the exact words that He wanted us to have from Him. Because though Paul wrote this letter or dictated it to a secretary, we know from 2 Peter 1.21 that no prophecy, not one single word of Scripture, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we turn this morning to Colossians, and we're only going to be doing just the greeting because it will be a bit of an overview sermon, an intro as we get into it. We do that remembering what we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And all means all. It means every single word. So even the greeting, which looks so standard in these letters, is not just a greeting, but we will see that it is a theologically packed statement for the church. Colossians 1, 1-2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, Colossi, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And that is the inerrant, authoritative, fully sufficient Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you have chosen to speak to us through your Word in a way that we might understand. Guide us this morning, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for a study of this important letter That points to the supremacy in all things of the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Now, we are starting a new book of the Bible today, and as we often do, we look at the context. It's important for us to look at the context because. We can't really rightly see what's there and interpret it and then apply it to our lives in the 21st century until we've properly determined what does it mean, what did it mean to the very first audience, to the Colossians who received this letter. Because we remember always that the Word of God is timeless. It is not just true, it is truth, John 17:17 tells us, and it is exactly the same, the, the meaning of the text, is exactly the same in the 1st century as it is in the 21st century. The Bible is not a wax nose, it's not something that we mold and shape to our culture in terms of what it means. There is but one meaning in Scripture, though the application will change given our context. So we need to know what it means and to whom it was written. And we know, of course, from this greeting that it was written to Christians, It was written to the brothers and sisters in Christ who lived in the city of Colossae. Now, Colossae, geographically, was part of the region of Phrygia, which I know means exactly nothing to you guys, or maybe there are some geographic experts out there. I'm not one. It's part of the Roman province of Asia, and if you need to locate it in your head, it is in modern-day Turkey. That is where the city of Colossae is is. And it's fascinating to me, you saw it in the note that I sent out this week, that while we've known where this city is, the actual city of Colossae, it has never been explored. No archaeologist has ever thought it important to dig in the city of Colossae, although at least by the most recent article there's an Australian team that's supposed to start doing that this year. But I find it fascinating that here we have one of the churches, one of the cities to which God sent his word through the Apostle Paul, and yet nobody's ever been curious enough to begin a dig there. They focus instead on other cities, Laodicea being one of them. Now Colossae was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a very important city. It was very diverse in ethnicities. It was very diverse in religions. It was very diverse in cultures. It was truly a melting pot of the different ethnic groups that made up the Roman Empire and the different religions that made up the Roman Empire. Uh, This church would include Jews. The Jewish population there had been planted there back in 213 BC by Antiochus III. He had sent 2,000 Jewish families to live in Colossae. And so by this time, there were Jews, there were certainly pagans, there were Greeks who grew up as pagans or polytheistic religions, and then there were the atheists, there were the secularists, there were the philosophers. And all of these people come from their varying backgrounds, and they end up in this church, just like us today, this very diverse church. Now, I say it was an important city, but by the time Paul wrote this letter to Colossae, It was no longer an important city. You see, back in the the last few hundred years of the B.C. era, when the Jews were settled there, when others were settled there, Colossae was extremely important. It was right at the crossroads of an east-west trade route and a north-south trade route. The east-west one is particularly of interest to us because only 100 to 120 miles to the west, near the coast, was the city of Ephesus. And to the east was the city of Sardis. And those may sound familiar to you because the churches in those two cities made up two of the seven churches that received the letters in Revelation 1 through 3. You also know of these cities from Ephesians and the pastoral epistles and Acts and other books of the Bible. But by the time that Paul wrote to the Colossians, the Romans had chosen to move the road So this is, you can think in your head, like the old western towns when the railroad would go through and the towns would explode and populations would come and businesses would come and people would come from all over. But if that railroad moved, that's how we end up with ghost towns that we like to visit. That is sort of what is happening to Colossae. The Romans had moved the road to run through Laodicea, which was only 12 miles to the west. And you see Paul reference in chapter 4 both Laodicea and Hierapolis, Both of these had big churches. He tells the Colossians, after you read this letter, because it is scripture, go and take it to the church at Laodicea and read it there as well. Uh, Read the one that I sent them as well. But Colossians itself, in some ways, was a dying town. Still a big metropolis, still famous for its black wool. That was kind of what their their trade was. But it was kind of a dying town. The English theologian J.B. Lightfoot wrote this, Colossae was the least important church to which any letter of St. Paul was addressed. It was the least important. All these other cities that we read in the, the letters to Ephesians and Philippians, all of those were to far more important places. But Colossae is a dying town. And yet the Apostle Paul writes a letter here. Now that inspires me greatly, probably more than it does you, but it should inspire you as well. And it does because anyone who's called to ministry... And I will pause there to say every one of you is called to ministry. You can go look at Ephesians. You are called, uh, we are called to equip you to minister to others. But if you are called to ministry, every article and virtually every book and the seminaries themselves teach you that you need to go where the population is. Go to the cities. That's, That's where God wants you to go. Or go to the outskirts of big cities where the population will kind of grow out and overpower you and grow your church by the numbers simply by... The population growth. Well, what's amazing here is that's clearly not the metric that God uses. But what is God most interested in? What is he doing? He is actually most interested in building up faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Building up those people who are called, who will gather together in person to worship him as his church. Who feed on the word of God. He's not interested in growing a whole bunch of nominal Christians who he can count by the numbers, but who have little desire for worship, little desire to conform their lives to the image of Christ by the power of God's Word. No, we get a picture here. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, maybe the single most important and certainly the most influential man in human history since Jesus Christ, actually writes a letter to this relatively insignificant, by this time, town. A town that is not growing. And a town that, uh, there's an earthquake that comes a few years after this letter is sent and demolishes Colossae, as well as the neighboring cities. The neighboring cities are rebuilt right away. Colossae takes decades before anybody cares to rebuild it. So why was Paul writing? Why would he write this letter to the Colossians? And here you have to start thinking about the motivation for the Apostle Paul. His passion for Christ, his love of God, his his allegiance to Jesus Christ drives him to love believers. He loves believers, and he has an earnest desire to correct the errors that these people are being infected with in their church. They run the risk of being led astray. And he doesn't even know them. The Apostle Paul does not know them personally. He just loves Christ, and therefore he loves everyone who belongs to him. And there's something else that we need to see here. That love for other Christians, it's not shown by tolerance. I think one time of a conversation that I had, and trying to get to the bottom of an issue, and, and the response I got back from a, a church leader was, well, Sally will be Sally, Paul that's not that's not Paul's reaction he doesn't say well joe does joe's things sally does sally's things it's all good that they profess christianity no his love for christ it transmits into his love for believers and it's not shown by tolerance as we get into the book we will see that it is shown by correction it is shown by reaching out in rebuke but mostly it is shown by reaching out in encouragement to turn to god's word and to conform life to their devotion to Christ. He didn't know the people there, and Paul didn't establish the church there. We think of Paul as establishing all of these churches in the regions, particularly in Asia Minor, where he spent so much time. But he did not establish the church in Colossae, and he had never been there. If you look farther down at Colossians 2.1... He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He has not been there. But there is a bit of a connection to these churches. And that comes through a man who is named in the first chapter. We can ask how did the church get established and look to verse 7 in chapter 1. And it tells us that the people heard the gospel from a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras is referred to by Paul as our beloved fellow servant. If you went all the way to chapter 4, in verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this. He is one of you. He is a Colossian, right? Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, the two important cities. It's interesting to me that when you look at a man like Epaphras, who is not an apostle, he is so committed to Christ that it appears that not only did he go to Paul with questions for the church, it is likely that he pastored this church, that he came to Paul and said, we have false teaching, I don't know how to address it. Give me the answers. And yet, he will not be the one who takes the letter back to the Colossians. That we will see later. But it looks as though he was arrested. That he would go to see Paul and be arrested for his faith in Christ. If you were to look at the letter to Philemon, who lived in Colossae. Paul writes this in verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. These were letters going at the same time. Epaphras is credited by virtually all scholars as planting that church in Colossae. And it is likely he was tied to and knew the Apostle Paul. That he was a convert through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. If you were to look at Acts 19, you begin to see the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And during that time, he spent between two and three years in Ephesus. Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is only about 100 miles away, the big coastal city of Ephesus. And in Acts 19.10, we read that Paul taught daily, and it continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, all the residents of Asia, Colossae is part of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Ephesus is a major commercial center. Major commercial center, and thus it was a place where people in that region would travel frequently for trade, and that would include those who lived in Colossae. As I mentioned, their trade by this time was this shiny black wool, which they were known for everywhere, and they would travel to Ephesus to market that. Paul, of course, when you look at his ministry, he is notable for expanding the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He taught men, he trained them, he equipped people to go out and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And Epaphras is likely one of these converts who becomes a Christian, who listens to Paul's teaching for years and goes back with enthusiasm to Colossae, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and plant a church. But now he's back, talking to Paul, and we still need to know why is Paul writing the letter? Why not just give him an answer? But here we talk about the occasion of the letter. Remember that from 1 John. Every letter in the Bible has an occasion, a reason for why it is written. And it's fascinating with Colossians because of how much has been written about why Colossians was written. If you look through chapters 2 and 3, and we won't go there today, we'll work our way through that over the coming weeks and months. But as we look at chapters 2 and 3, you are giving clue after clue after clue as to what the problem in the church was, what the false teaching is. And throughout the ages, there have been many articles written, many books written even, on the Colossian heresy. So many people trying to figure out what is the Colossian heresy. One author in the 1970s actually wrote an academic piece where he cataloged about 45 different other articles and books written about what the Colossian heresy was, all of which took a different approach. And then there have been dozens more since that time. But I would say the beauty here is that Paul does not tell us specifically what that false teaching was. Unlike some of his other letters, he does not call out specific false teachers. And the reason I say that that is a beautiful thing for us is because... If we knew exactly what that false teaching was, then in our human hearts we are so prone to say, that doesn't apply to me. I like my own version of false teaching, and Paul didn't mention that specifically. I mean, we do this with idolatry all the time, right? Calvin says our hearts are virtually factories of idols, and they are, we have tons of them. But what we often see in the Bible is, well, I'm not subject to idolatry because go look at my house. I don't have any little statues anywhere that I worship. And Paul here does not tell us specifically what the false teaching is. Instead, he's giving us encouragements to correct that we'll see along the way. And that ultimately leaves us with no excuse. We actually can't pick and choose. We don't even know as much about the Colossians as we might like. We just know from what is written, not just in the Bible, but outside the Bible, that it was a very complicated society that had many religions, many philosophies, uh, a philosophical movement, and cultural movements that all competed for attention. Now, this morning is just a summary, so we're not actually going to dig into any of the specific warnings until we get there. And you have a few weeks to prepare yourself because the rest of chapter 1 doesn't really do that. What we do know, though, is that Paul is writing to address false teaching. And it was working its way in and among the church. And it was misleading Christians. And it had the great possibility to lead many astray. And that is a picture of what we see today. And that is why Colossians is going to be so relevant and we should be all the more eager to hear the word of God spoken through the hand of the Apostle Paul about the danger of false teaching. As you look through the letter, you can ask yourself, where was the false teaching coming from? And this is an important question because what do we naturally want to do? We want to grab on to those people that we like, but we want to say that false teaching and the threat to the church comes from outside. That it's those people, whoever that group or those people might be. But here it is clear that the false teaching was being promoted from within, from within the church. And that is always where the danger to the true faith in Jesus Christ comes from. It comes most effectively and almost always through very enthusiastic uh, teachers and preachers with great charisma who appeal to people, who are easy to listen to, and who teach and preach with great enthusiasm and great conviction about what they're saying. And the problem is the conviction that they're speaking with comes from a conviction to the spirit of the age, not to the word of God. It comes from culture. It does not come from the teachings of Christ and His word. That culture, the spirit of the age, will appeal to many. It appeals to many today. Because if you can take something that is culturally approving, culturally relevant, and make it sound Christian, make it sound Christian, and if indeed those same errors are spewed out by somebody who is trusted, And they tickle the ears of people who are so eager to find something more than what God has given us, and most likely something different than what God has given us. There must be a better way. This is too convicting. And as that takes hold, it leads that group of people in that church towards apostasy, toward a departure from the faith. And that is what drives Paul, because the danger is to the Christian faith, does not come from outside the church. That is where ideas originate from. But that's not where the danger comes from. A Christian knows that when you're listening to a secularist, when you're listening to an atheist, when you're listening to a politician, that they're not to be listened to on these things. That's not danger. Those are wolves. Wolves aren't dangerous. You see they're a wolf and you run away from them. What does the Bible warn us about? Wolves in sheep's clothing. Right. That's... The danger is the wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, Corinthians reminds us it's the devil appearing as an angel of light. Uh, Not as the devil, not as a horrifying image to run away from, uh, but men and women cloaked in the righteousness of religion, appearing as an angel of light. And that's what makes it so hard. That's what made it hard for the Colossians, and that's why Paul will have to address these things. It's actually what makes it hard for us. Because many teachers today, many denominations, many, many pastors, many authors, they sound very Christian. And in fact, in the past we may have thought of them as Christian and they may have even done things and demonstrated the great hallmarks of Christianity, but whose error has come from an embrace of the world. They love the world more than Christ. They have strayed into falsehood because they have lost their grip on the head to use Paul's metaphor of the body, right? In Colossians 1.18, what does he say? He says, Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. And in 2.19, he notes that these people who teach falsehood are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. It is losing a grip on Scripture and the authority of Christ that has allowed them to stray. To sound Christian, but preach the world. Now the purpose of this letter, as we will see as we get into it, is to emphasize then the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. The absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ in everything. For salvation and for sanctification. And those two things go hand in hand. Jesus did not die on the cross to forgive sins and send you out to sin your way uh, for the rest of this life and then show up again for judgment. No, it's salvation and sanctification. It is uh, teaching that to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is to have union with Him, to be found in Christ, that we are part of Him, He is part of us, and then all of our personal conduct should then flow from that union in Christ and from the truth of God's Word. That is what Paul is going to be doing. And broadly speaking, he's going to make three points as we go through this letter. The first is the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. The second is the sufficiency of Christ. He is going to address these errors, the sufficiency of Christ. He is going to make clear that the person and work of Jesus is fully sufficient, complete for salvation and sanctification of true believers. That nothing can be added. No tradition, no extra steps, no uh, right, uh, wear the right thing and make the right hand signals and get the right blessing and eat the right food and get the right cracker and the right, right wine, all that. Nothing can be added. He is fully sufficient and nothing can be taken away from his word either. And finally, he will, throughout this, weave the application. And that application is an application of the lordship of Jesus Christ to every aspect of your life as a believer. He is not just Lord on Sunday mornings. He is Lord seven days a week every millisecond of the day if you follow Him. And so that is what Paul will be doing broadly speaking. So now if you can take a step back in time and imagine yourself as one of these Colossian Christians the way it would have looked is you would have gathered on a Sunday morning as God's people always did from all time to worship Him and to honor Him for the reading of His Word. And you would have stood Something we would hate today, but they stood the entire service. They didn't have seats. And someone would have stood up and announced, we have received a letter from the Apostle Paul. There would be no turning in your Bibles because they didn't have them. And there would be no chapters and verses, but the letter would be read from start to finish. Likely multiple times. And you would do it week upon week as these truths rang home. And so it would begin this way. Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. Now if you hear that and you're standing there, what is your first thought? Your first thought uh, might be, Paul, Uh, we've never seen him, we've never met him, we have heard of him, he was in Ephesus, but I, I also seem to recall that I heard something else about him. Wasn't he in prison? Why am I getting this letter from him? Isn't he in prison? Isn't he in prison for preaching Christ? Uh, For standing firm, for telling people of the perfect life of Jesus and His substitutionary death and His resurrection from the grave and that you could be saved and reconciled to God and forgiven of your sins, but only one way. And that one way is exclusive to Jesus Christ and you must turn from your sin and follow Him and now He's in chains. And you would be right. Because this letter was written from prison. He was imprisoned in Rome, it was written between 60 and 62 AD, and it was one of four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all penned by Paul from prison. Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians would all travel together in a mailbag. He is in prison, and I find this fascinating when you think about it. What drives this man who loves Jesus Christ this way? Here he sits in prison in chains knowing uh, nothing about what comes tomorrow. So how is it that the apostle Paul is not sitting there focused on his own suffering? Focused on the things people say and why he is in chains? It is unfair, right? He is faithful. He is more faithful, I dare to say, than any of us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's in jail. And he has no freedom. And he doesn't know when he's getting out. What drives a man like this? How is it that Paul in prison, and he's just a man like us, there's nothing special about him physically, he's just a man, what makes him more concerned about teaching Christ? About calling men and women to repentance and faith in accordance with God's word. About reaching out and encouraging the Christians to turn from their ways, their straying off the path. They must walk with Christ by the power of the Spirit. What drives a man in jail to care that much about people he has never met, but who he calls brothers and sisters in Christ? I read this and I wonder if you're there in jail for your own faith. How do you not just get irritated and depressed when Epaphras shows up in your area and says to you, "By the way, brother Paul, these people are straying off into new teachings. The word of God is no longer sufficient for them. They have found cultural deviations, and so they're twisting it a bit and they're they're ignoring parts of it. How should I respond?" How do you not sitting there in jail say, I don't know, man. I'm in jail. Life's not fair. Look at me. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've, been, I've received 39 lashes. I, I, I'm in jail. I'm tired of this. That's not what he does. And I pray when I look at this, as minor as our sufferings are in life, that we actually might have the love that Paul has, the patience that Paul has, the desire to reach the people of the church that Paul has. And we need to remind ourselves then of who is this man. Because there was a day where if you were a gathered Christian and somebody got a letter and the first word of that letter was Paul, you might have gone running out of that congregation in dreadful fear. Because that is not how Paul started out. He writes by this time as an apostle But that's not what he always was. He was born Saul, not Paul, from the tribe of Benjamin, likely named after Israel's first king, Saul, same tribe. And Paul was his Greek name. Very common to have both a Greek and a Hebrew name. And Paul was a Roman citizen, which is a a great gift. It allowed him to travel. You see this come up in the book of Acts. But he was born to Jewish parents. And he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which was a center of education in the Greco-Roman world. Paul was highly educated uh, from the earliest stage. In Philippians 3.5, we learn that his Jewish credentials were second to none. They were second to none. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and a Pharisee. He was an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee. Acts 2.22 tells us that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbi, according to the strict manner of the law. He was a rising star in that world. But we are first introduced to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And there in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, Stephen has just been preaching Christ. And then he is stoned to death by men as Paul approved of that stoning and held the coats of those so that they could throw the rocks. That's our introduction to Saul. In Galatians 1:13 and 14, Paul wrote this about himself. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was therefore advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. What an accomplishment for his violence against Christians. He's getting a gold star every day jumping up the corporate ladder in Judaism. He was so extremely zealous, he says, for the traditions of his fathers. Acts 8.3 confirms... That Saul was ravaging the church. And get this, you have to make this real in your head. It says he was entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Imagine him breaking through your front door. You hear the screams of the children as he drags off your wife because he heard she was a Christian. Or your husband. And you wonder where your next meal is coming from because you won't see him again. And this is Paul. And so you get this letter and it says Paul. And you say, is, is that the Paul or is there a change? Is that Paul? It is Paul. Right? This is the Apostle Paul. And I would just tell you here, because you hear it around you. If you ever hear somebody use that, that ridiculous excuse that they have sinned too much to walk into church, that Christ can't forgive them, they're, they're too much of a sinner, that is pride. That is nothing but pride coming. Tell them to study the Apostle Paul. Until the day that they have been dragging men and women out of their houses for following Christ, they haven't even approached the level of sin of the Apostle Paul. And yet he speaks with authority. He speaks with authority to the Colossians as a man who speaks for the living Christ Jesus. And he draws them to this authority when he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostle can mean many things. Just means sent one, messenger. But Paul is speaking here of a very particular office. A very particular office of apostle. He is an authorized emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has authority to speak for him and authority to speak to this church. He is speaking in the same way that the prophets of old would start by saying, Thus saith the Lord. And so everything he writes is coming straight from God the Holy Spirit. Now, the office of the apostle. Paul is an interesting one. He didn't walk with Jesus during his ministry. Uh, The office of apostle has some very specific elements. And that is why there are no apostles today. Zero apostles today. The, The first sign that you should run from someone who is trying to tell you something, man or woman, is when they claim to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are zero apostles in the church today. If you need a reference for that, look to Ephesians 2 verse 20. It says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There is one foundation for a house. There is one foundation for a building. There is not a new foundation laid on the fifth floor or the tenth floor or the twelfth floor. And anybody who comes to you and says, I am now an apostle building a new foundation on the twentieth floor of this building... That is not a building that contains Christ as the cornerstone, and you must run because that building is being built on shifting sand, and it will fall, and the fall will be severe. There are no apostles today. The office of apostle required that the man know Jesus Christ personally and be trained by him and to have been a witness to the risen Christ. Acts 1, and 22 explains this. And this is why Paul adds, Here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, because God is sovereign, in control, completely sovereign over all things. And that is true from Genesis to Revelation. You only need to look at the teaching of Jesus in John 6. In verse 44, Jesus taught the crowd and he said, No one, not a single one of you, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He pointed toward the work of the Holy Spirit. We know this in John 3. No one can even see the kingdom of God unless he has been born again by the work of the Spirit. But still in John 6, verse 63, he said, It is the Spirit who gives life, the Holy Spirit. The flesh is of no hope at all. Paul could not decide to do this on his own, should he wish. Verse 65, he closes this lesson of the day. A dreadful lesson where many would leave him because they could not handle submitting to the Christ. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And so we know that we are saved by grace through faith, right? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Could not be more clear and no one knew the transformational power of God. Uh, Of the faith that leads to obedience like the Apostle Paul. I dare say no one knew it like he did. He had an encounter with the risen Christ that would change his life because that encounter happened while he was on the road to go persecute followers of Jesus. We know this in Acts chapter 9. It gives us this account of how he was saved. Of how he was called by the will of God, not his own. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christian, men or women, didn't matter. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? let must remember this is an educated man. Star is on the rise in religion. Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. He knows his stuff. He knows his Bible. And what does he say? Who are you, Lord? He knows he is in the presence of God. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. He had an encounter with the living Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 begins by giving us that great gospel summary. It jumps through Paul doing the account of who the risen Christ appeared to. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul makes it very clear that he had an encounter with the risen Christ when he wrote, last of all as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But this gospel message, this second element, this gospel message that he proclaims was not taught to him in a school run by men. It was not given to him by the apostle Peter. He didn't go meet with uh, any of the others. He, He didn't go seek out James in the Jerusalem church. He preaches a gospel that was taught to him by Jesus Christ who is commissioning him for his service. Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Very similar to Colossians. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, jump to verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to read the rest of that chapter They cut it out of here for, for time's sake. But it is fascinating and it is clear, this amazing transformation. This is the apostle who now writes to the Colossian church from his own chains in prison with the authority to speak from God. And this letter would be known from the beginning as Holy Scripture, just as it is today. It is the very word of God. The apostle Peter confirms that for us in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 we look that one up later, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. There's something else that Paul does in this greeting. though. And here we return to our text. Because we remember that he is preparing here in Colossians to launch into the supremacy of Christ in all things. And how the believers then union with Christ will be shown in all aspects of life. He's going to draw them back to the word. And he uses a very particular word order here. It's not the only time that he does it in his letters, but it is quite rare. Paul refers not to Jesus Christ. Now, your English translations may smooth this out. Most don't, but there are a few that do. But Paul very specifically writes Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. He is being very deliberate here. He is emphasizing the fact that Christ is a title, not a name. And by this time, when you look at the Greek lexicons, actually by this time in the Greek speaking world, it was already turning into like it is today, where Christ was treated as a surname Jesus Christ. I'd like you to meet Jesus, or you can call him Mr. Christ if you would like, right? That's kind of how people refer to Jesus Christ today. And that was already happening in the Greek world because Christos sounds an awful lot like a name in Greek. And so he's being deliberate. Because Christ is a title, right? We just transliterate it, Christos. It's a Greek term for Messiah. Here's the literal definition from the lexicon. Christ is the fulfiller of the Israelite expectation of a deliverer, right? The deliverer to whom the entire Old Testament points. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. It is a title that is given to Jesus. And even the term Christian, which has completely lost its meaning today. Ask ten people what being a Christian is, and you will likely get ten different answers. It is a sad state of affairs in the West. But it has lost its meaning, but it derived from the fact that these were followers, disciples of Jesus, who was the Christ. Acts 11, 25, and 26 tells us, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is at the beginning of Paul's ministry. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's amazing. They taught people for an entire year. How different is that from our version today? Where we think Christianity is a one and done thing. Do you want to go to heaven? I can give you a prayer to say, and then you can go back and live your life however you want to leave it. At the end of days when Christ it stands before you is the righteous and holy judge remind him that you said a prayer when you were whatever age and and you were his that is not what happened that is not the testimony of scripture it's not the picture of discipleship which is what we are called to that's why our mission in our church right is be disciples to make disciples uh, disciples of Jesus Christ it doesn't match the great commission think of Jesus' words Matthew 28 18 through 20 all authority All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go therefore and make disciples, not just converts, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is the commission that Paul is fulfilling with this letter. And as he begins it, he wants people to know that Jesus of Nazareth, This Jesus they knew as a man is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one who fulfilled God's entire line of promises about the great King of kings and Lord of lords who would rule and reign for all eternity, who would come from the Davidic line. And if you were here last week, you remember how we closed Ruth with that very thing. And that is what Paul is driving people to. Because the Christ is the one that God sent, the one that God sent to live in perfect obedience and therefore fulfill the law that we cannot do, right? Uh, We are sons of the first Adam who sinned and therefore we are born with our sin. The second Adam, Christ, comes without sin and fulfills the law perfectly and then goes to the cross and dies in substitution, paying the penalty and atoning sacrifice for all who repent and believe in Christ, who turn away from their sin, who follow him and this Paul achieves with a great economy of words just by referring to Christ Jesus. He is the Christ, this Jesus that we will be talking about. He does something else here. Paul is the author, but he just adds this other name at the end of this sentence Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy, our brother, this would be a fun one. We don't have time to dive all into Timothy's conversion and how Paul then comes and gets Timothy. But Timothy shared very uniquely in the ministry of Paul, and Paul had a special affection for him because nobody served along his side like the pastor, Timothy. In Philippians 2.22, you get a little example. He writes, "...but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel." But what is interesting here is that Timothy has no known connection with Colossae. He also has not met these people. So why does Paul mention him? Uh, Well, one reason is because Timothy would soon take the mantle from Paul. Not as an apostle, but as a called man to train and teach and preach. And where would he have this leading role? Uh, He would have it in Asia, which is where Colossae is. This is an introduction of Timothy. And you see this in the prominence that Timothy is given in Ephesus and throughout the instructions that Paul gives Timothy in the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy, as he prepares him for this. In fact, the final letter that Paul ever writes, knowing that his death is imminent, knowing that he will soon be martyred, he writes to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he gives him a warning and an encouragement which is being modeled by Paul in writing to the Colossians. He says this in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. He said, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, do one thing for me, Timothy. Go out there and preach the word. We might like it if what Paul said is, is read a verse and tell a story that will make people happy. That is not what he says. Timothy, go preach the word, the word of God. It is the only thing that saves. Romans 1, right? 16 and 17. It is the power of God for salvation. There is no power of God for salvation outside of his written word that he has given us that points to the living word, Jesus Christ. Preach the word, Timothy, and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming. And the time is now. And the time was then. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't. They'll have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. To tell them it doesn't really say what it says. It doesn't mean what it means. You can do whatever you want. And whatever makes you feel good in the moment. Ignore what God clearly says. No, people will do this. They will suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. Timothy will be a shepherd. You need to go out and get those sheep that are wandering. They will wander off. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. It is coming. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Where was Timothy when Paul wrote this? By his side. In Rome. In the prison. He was there with Paul. And Timothy gets a view of what Christians are called to. Paul doesn't train Timothy by telling him what to do. Paul trains Timothy by showing him what it looks like to follow Christ. To have a part that absolutely bleeds for the people of Christ. Uh, The same man who had no problem uh, approving of the stoning of people, of arresting people, of that kind of hardness of heart is hard for me to imagine, this same man now writes from prison and he cares so deeply for people he has not met but who may be closer to him than blood relatives because they are in Christ. So he writes to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. A saint is a bit of a loaded term in our day but it does not mean what you think it means to use a line from a movie. Certainly it does not mean what we tend to think it means. It was not a title given to a dead man or a dead woman by some ecclesial authority made up by men. That's not what a saint is. That is not how the Bible uses the term saint. All of you, you are found in Christ, are saints. It is just a Greek term, hagios, which gets translated either holy ones or saints. And depending on which English version of the Bible you have, it will say one of those two things, and both of them are right. It meant the same thing. But what does it mean then? What does it mean to be a holy one? What does it mean to be a saint? It means to be set apart. It means to be holy and fully dedicated to God. That is the usage in the Old Testament. Uh, the like the Hebrew words that are similar and it carries forward into the New Testament. And for believers, what Paul is conveying to them is that it means you are now separated from your sin in Christ. You are to step away from all things, all things that are contrary to the nature and will of God. How do you know those? He has revealed them to us in Scripture. And you must be set apart. And in fact, if you are found in Christ, you are already set apart. You are dedicated to God. You are set apart in Him. You are saved by His person in work. And the thrust of this statement is not looking for perfection. It's not a statement that draws to our character, right? We know That sanctification is a lifelong process. So we will continue to sin and repent and sin and repent and we will get better and better as Christ works in us through the Spirit. That is not what it's pointing to. What it is pointing to is an absolute loyalty and commitment to Jesus Christ and to the church over which Christ serves as the head. That is what Paul is pointing to here. And he makes that point clear, and we'll see it as we get into Colossians 2 and 3, where he's going to keep reinforcing that salvation involves not just some sort of mental ascent. It doesn't just involve somebody saying, well, I believe that Jesus lived, and I do believe that he died on the cross, and I, I think he rose from the grave. I'm good. Leave me alone, man. That's not actually what it is. It is that, but it is the transformative power of the Holy Spirit that results in truly knowing Christ as Lord, as following him. It was being alive in Him. Him granting you life. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you are saved, you are a new person, a new creation, it says. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Philippians 3, 20 gives us this promise that this, this has happened. You're not citizens of this place. Uh, yes, we are in our country. We must vote and do the things that we must do. But you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven if you are found in Christ. We know 1 John 3, 2, we cite it often, right? If you are a believer, what does he say? You are God's children now. Not all are God's children, but if you are found in Christ, you are God's children now. You're not waiting for it someday. You have been adopted. It cuts against the grain for many people. Uh, To think that you are a believer, that you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, because you have kind of a mental ascent, but you are not set apart. You have no desire to gather with the people of God and worship Him. You deny the things that He has said because you choose your own pleasures in this life. And your pleasures are not the things that should be pleasing to you if you are to be found in Him. To, To think that you can deny the testimony of Scripture and go your own way. Not set apart, but set in the world. You're wrong. It's a fool's errand. You will find nowhere in Scripture something that talks about a disengaged or inactive disciple. It pains me a little bit that many churches, ours included, that at some point in the past men came up with some notion of an inactive member of a church. What in the world is that? I'm an inactive disciple of Jesus Christ. When I show up on the day of judgment and stand in front of him, I will say, Lord Jesus, I I was sort of with you, but I was an inactive follower. I actually had better things that I liked in life. Now, I had no desire in life to spend time with the saints in worship of you, but I would like to maybe activate that inactive thing and spend eternity with the same people I couldn't stand to be with in this present life, worshiping you who I had no desire to worship, and I will submit to you even if that's okay. That's a silliness, right? Paul is writing to people who are set apart, set apart for Christ. And the source of that separation is what? It's very simple. He has it right here in it is faith. You're set apart by your faith in the living Christ. That's why he addresses the brothers and sisters as saints and faithful brothers. He's not saying you're perfect, right? He's just about ready to write to them, to encourage them not to go straying off into errors so they're not perfect. Nor are we. What he is saying is you are set apart and it is because of your faith. And that is a great encouragement that Paul is offering them and us because these are men and women who are trying, right? They are trying to fend off false teaching and they don't have the gift of a Bible sitting in front of them. They only have teachers. They only sit around in their houses and they read blogs and they watch YouTube clips of pastors. Not really, right? I think they had YouTube in the first century but look, they are exactly the same as us. What they did have, they didn't have you two, but they were very confused because they have people. This is the same as 1 John, right? We talked about this same problem. What they have is people who have departed from the faith but who remain in the church, who profess to be Christians, who are now teaching them something different, something new, something that will suit their passions, and they are telling them that they have a greater enlightenment to the truth. They are saying there is something more. There is something better. There is something that you can see that I have that you don't have the wisdom for. It is a great encouragement because there is no greater truth, greater enlightenment than what is on the pages of Holy Scripture. And what these men and women actually become, and it just sounds mean in our day to say it, But either on purpose or unwittingly, what they become is agents of Satan. That is exactly what they are. They are fulfilling the devil's work. They're subtracting from the word of God. They're adding to the word of God. But most importantly, what they are doing is twisting the word of God. They are repeating that sin in the garden. Genesis 3, where the devil appears and says, Did God actually say And then twist scripture just a little bit to get Eve to bite and be on side. That is the devil's work. Now, closing this out, Paul is addressing people who live in Colossae. That we know, but he draws them to one other fact. You may be physically present in Colossae, but spiritually, you are in Christ. He says, you are brothers in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. To be in Christ is Paul's way of saying, you're located there physically, but you are now in the kingdom of God's Son. You must live like it. You must fear the Lord, approach Him with reverence and awe, but servants of the Master, He already has all authority in heaven and on earth, and you must act like it. To be in Christ means that a person's entire existence has been reoriented, reoriented, No longer are you to hold to your old ways. You depart from those old groups, those parties, the the politics that once identified you. No, you guide everything by Scripture and by Christ. You are reoriented 100%. Even families outside the kingdom of God, and this is so hurtful and hard, they're not your closest family any longer. You are oriented around the centrality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The son of God. And he must be preeminent. He must be first in all things. And if he is, he will guide your actions. And here's the purpose statement that he closes with. Grace to you and peace from God our father. That is kind of a funny one when you look at this because Paul is doing a little play on words here. Because just like we have a form of letters, dear so-and-so, I hope you are well, and then write what you want to write and then say respectfully, sincerely, whatever. They did the same thing in Hellenistic times. And letters always started this way. Kareen, greetings. Paul writes, karis, grace. So close. Kareem, karis, right? Paul is clever. He can say aloud with simple words. Grace be to you. This is a constant reminder to these Christians. We're about ready to get some tough stuff, but he wants them to be drawn ever near to the Lord. He's going to encourage them and encourage us along the way. Grace be to you, because that is the joy that you receive as belonging to Christ, and therefore recipients of God's grace. We remember what grace is, right? Grace is the foundational Element, the, the instrumental piece of the new covenant between God and his people. Right? We're not dependent on our own good works. Thank God. People do good things, but they're as filthy rags to God unless they are done to honor Christ. And our status is just not dependent on that. We're all sinners. You know that Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is life in Christ. Grace is what God gives us that we do not earn. It is unmerited favor. It is unearned intervention on behalf of his people. He gives his people the exact opposite of what we deserve, right? And here's how he does it. He sends his son. He sent his son as a substitution for us to stand in our place for the penalty that we owe Thus, it is God's grace that brings salvation, not us. It is God's grace and it is his mercy and it is shown through Jesus' person and work. Perfect obedience, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension to the Father's right hand, and he will return again one day in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace through faith that our sins are nailed to the cross and wiped away. And that his righteousness is then credited to us. Grace to you, believers, is what Paul writes. And peace. And peace. Grace and peace. God is the source of grace. And therefore, only God can grant us peace. We pray for peace. We're told to pray for peace with the world so that they they leave us alone and allow us to gather to worship him freely. And we should be thankful every day that we're allowed to do that in this country still. They're not so lucky elsewhere. But that's not the peace that is being spoken of here. We have no peace with a righteous and holy God as sinners. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He must judge every every sin against him. We need peace with God. Reconciliation with God. And that peace comes only through Jesus Christ. The ultimate display of God's grace and His love and His mercy. And it's through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven by God, reconciled to Him. Uh, We remember that there is but one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. It is through Jesus' perfect life, it is through His death, it is through His resurrection that God has uh, delivered that grace, and He calls us to believe in Him. That is the only way to receive God's grace and peace. And it is God's grace and peace that Paul closes with here because it is that grace and peace that the Colossians will need to stand in the face of false teaching. And it is what we need as well. Grace and peace ultimately translate into that gift of perseverance if you are the recipient of God's grace. And it is only by and through Jesus Christ And you must turn to Him. And you must turn away from the world. And you must believe and serve Him as Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank You for Your Word. We eagerly look forward to it. We pray that the Holy Spirit does His work in us, convicting us of our sins, drawing us to repentance, proclaiming, the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that by that we glorify the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord we thank you that by your grace, by your mercy, by your love, you did something that we could not imagine and had no right to ask for. You sent your son. We are grateful for your sacrifice. We Pray to you, God, that you would indeed save our families, save those in our community, use us as instruments to proclaim the good news, the gospel. Lord, give us courage to call for repentance. Give us the words to speak it in love, but never compromise or waver from truth. Lord, give us the strength to walk away from those groups that where we should not belong. Give us the wisdom to understand your ways, what fear of the Lord looks like, what true obedience looks like in these confusing times. Keep us from this confusion, God. We pray in the weeks to come that you will use your word such that we might apply it in the 21st century and see so clearly how to follow your Son Pray that we might worship you in spirit and truth as you call us to do, that we come to you and be able to raise holy hands, not hands stained with sin. Father, we thank you for the wonderful mercy that you have shown your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name, the name of our Lord, our Savior. God, help us follow him. Amen.